All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, Bruce, would you be willing to open us up in a word of prayer before we get rolling? Amen. Amen. All right. So like, like Paul was just, or like, man, like Paul, uh, like Bruce was just praying. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter nine tonight. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, glad to kind of be back. Um, and then I am the bearer of bad news that because of EBS next week, we won't have Wednesday night Bible study. Um, and so, uh, but you can still come and serve at VBS because we still need a couple of people. Um, if you're able, so come and talk to myself or Amy. Amy LaForge should be here. Um, actually, I think she's walking in right now. So um, remember next week, like I said, I'll let us know on Sunday, but next week, no Bible study. And then after that, we will be on a roll until we finish the book of Romans, um, unless the Lord returns. And in that, in that case, then hallelujah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, before we begin... Uh, Romans chapter 9. I just want to preface uh, this chapter with a couple of things. Um, this chapter is probably um, a more difficult chapter to digest in the book of Romans. Uh, and the reason for that being is that we're going to cover a topic that many churches uh, avoid talking about or, or uh, avoid teaching. And it's the topic of sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And so chapter 9 is going to pose a bunch of questions. We're going to look at uh, passages from the Old Testament uh, in which Paul references specific things. But Romans chapter 9 begins to bring a slight shift in focus in what Paul has been talking about up to this point. Now, if, if you remember back Romans 1 through Romans 8, uh, Paul thoroughly convinced us that man has a need of God, uh, but he also convinced us of God's glorious provision through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that comes because of salvation. Now we get to Romans chapter 9, uh, Romans 10, Romans 11, and we're going to begin to deal with the problems that are associated with the condition of Israel. And he's going to focus really on Israel and on the, on the believers, those who follow Christ. And he's going to answer these questions like, what does it mean that Israel has missed its Messiah? What does it mean? Well, what, is it, what does it say about God that Paul mentions that Israel missed its Messiah? What does it say about Israel? And what, what does it say about our present position or standing uh, in God or with God? And then the question goes something like this. As I was studying out this portion of scripture, I, I had this thought that how can I, how can we as a church body be secure in God's love and salvation when it seems that in this portion of scripture that Israel was once loved and saved but now seems to be rejected and cursed. And we're going to see as we begin to navigate this and begin to walk this out. Will, will God reject and curse me one day? Now I'm going to hopefully answer this question for you as we go through this. And, and my and my thought was, and in, through some discussion with a few people over the course of the last week, it got brought up in conversation on this very chapter. And one of the questions that was posed to me was like, if God can't bring his ancient people into salvation, how do Christians know that he can save them? How do they know that? How do they know that God can save them? Now, Paul is not in any way, shape, or form here uh, proceeding to a new or unrelated subject in Scripture. He's going to cover the sovereignty of God just, just like the Old Testament did. And there are three chapters uh, that are a part of the way that he makes very plain of how God, in fact, does and can save people. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to start out by looking at the first two verses here in chapter 9. And Paul 
starts out by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, I want us to just stop here for a moment because we need to understand where Paul is at. In Romans chapter 8, Paul left us at the summit of glory. Man, no condemnation for those who are found in Jesus Christ. And he assured, or assured the believer that there was nothing that could separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Paul finishes out the summit of everything he explained in the first eight chapters. So why now has Paul become so somber in his tone to start off the very next chapter? He says sorrow and continual grief is what he's feeling in this moment. So how did Paul go from God's glory, nothing can separate us to I'm sorrowful and stricken with grief? Like how does that happen? Well, Paul feels these two ways because he's considering a people who have seemed to be separated from God's love and he's talking about unbelieving Israel. The ones who rejected God's Messiah. And so Paul uses every possible assurance to declare his great sorrow that he's feeling right now over lost and hurting people. This is something that really bothered Paul and was on his heart. So let me just ask us a question before we go any further. Have you ever had such great sorrow or such great grief over someone close to you that didn't know the Lord? Anyone ever been in that place? Maybe it was a family member, um, a friend, someone you had known for a very long time, and every time you shared the gospel, every time the Bible came up, every time Christ came up, in some way they rejected it, they shot it down, they argued against it. Something happened, but inside of you, you had this overwhelming sorrow because that person didn't know Jesus Christ. That's where Paul is at. That, it wasn't just one person, though. This was thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that Paul had interacted with. And this is where he's at. He's saying, I have, I have grief and I have sorrow for these people. Now look at verse number three. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul, in this declaration that's dramatic here in Scripture, he's saying, I have a great love and a great sorrow for my brethren. So Paul, Paul is saying that he himself, so let me take us back now to the question that I asked. In that sorrow, in that grief over the loved one, the friend who rejected Christ, who didn't know God, who was on their way to eternal separation from the love and mercy of God, did you ever, ever think and or pray in that moment, God, take me and save them. Take me. I'll be separated, God, so that they can, they can be in your presence. That, that's where Paul is at. He's willing to be separated from Jesus if that could somehow accomplish salvation for other people. He's willing. I'm, I'm willing to be separated. Well, we should not think, though, that Paul is merely using a dramatic metaphor here in his speech to us, the, the solemn assurance that he gave to us in the very first verse reminds us that he's being completely truthful in how he not only feels, but in what he is saying. I'm being truthful. I'm being honest. He's, what did he say to start out chapter one? He said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm starting out by saying, I'm speaking this truth in Christ that I'm willing to be separated from you, Christ, if it means salvation for thousands of other people. I'm willing to do that. And I, I, I look at this and, and I see this great passion for the souls of men that Paul has here in Scripture. And I think that lesser things to Paul did not trouble him because he was troubled by a great thing, the soul of men. He was troubled by a great thing, the soul of men. 
Charles Spurgeon said that great love for the souls of men, if you have a great love for the souls of men, you will be delivered from petty worries. You'll be delivered from petty worries. If you get your soul full of great grief, then your little griefs will be driven out, is what Charles Spurgeon said. And so Paul, in my opinion, Paul began to reflect the same heart of Moses back in the book of Exodus chapter 32 when Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Oh God, your people have committed a great sin against you because they have chosen the golden idol or the calf picture. And what what he was saying, and Moses pleaded with God, and he said, please forgive them of their sins, I pray. And he said, and if not, blot me out of your book for them. Blot me. Moses was ready to stand in the gap because of his love for the souls of other men and women and children. And to me, Paul shows the heart of Jesus when he does the same exact thing. Man, Paul was cursed on behalf of others to bring the gospel, just as Christ was cursed on behalf of all sinners so that we might be saved. Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 3. Now, we should remember that when it came to ministry, the Jews... So the Israelites here were Paul's worst enemy, his worst enemy. They harassed him, they persecuted him in every single town. They stirred up lies and violence against him, and yet he still had that much passion for them. Uh, I wonder if, if all of the pain that Paul felt for his brothers and all, it was all the more severe when he considered how God had blessed them with all of the privileges of being his chosen nation. I wonder if it was worse for them, or for him, sorry. And Paul considered the human legacy of, of being God's chosen people, and Israel not only gave us the great fathers of the Old Testament, but Jesus himself came out of the Israel nation. Jesus himself. And so the, the entire spiritual legacy that we see throughout scripture makes Israel's unbelief all the more problematic, at least in my eyes, and which is why Israel is presented in this specific condition from God's perspective. So look with me at verse number six. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse number 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son now let's just stop there because this is a big chunk. Paul thinks of someone looking at Israel and saying God's word didn't come through for them. That's what Paul is arguing. He's arguing against the one that said God's word didn't come through for me. And he didn't fulfill his promises for, for, for me because I missed my Messiah and now I'm cursed. And so Paul's going to begin to argue against this one person. This argument that someone might bring, like, how do I know that God will come through for me? And so Paul asserts it and says it in this way. It's not that the word of God has taken no effect. He says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Well, wait, what? What is that supposed to mean? Well, one meaning, church, one meaning for the name Israel is governed by God. One name for the name Israel means governed by God. So Paul is saying here that not all of Israel is really governed by God. Not all of Israel is really governed by God. Now I have a question for you. Did God's word fail when it went forth from the prophets and the apostles? Sorry? Is that a question or are we making a statement God's word did not fail? 
no, it, right, it, it did not fail. God's word did not fail. Instead, Paul is saying, not all of the people that heard the word of God are governed by God who are of Israel. So not everyone has received and is now walking in light of God's word. And so Paul tells us that no one is truly Israel unless he is under the headship of God. You guys tracking with me so far? No one is truly Israel unless he is under the headship of God. Now we have a parallel situation with our modern day usage of the word Christian. The word Christian. Not everyone who, who calls themselves Christian is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Would you, would you agree with the statement, not everyone who calls themselves Christian is truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, just like it was in the Bible, it is the same now. God's word did not fail, and Paul says that because God still reaches his children of the promise, is what Paul wrote, which may or may not be the same as physical Israel here. Now, Paul shows that merely being a descendant of Abraham saves nobody. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham. For example, um, who were the two main sons of Abraham that were talked about in the Old Testament? I'm sorry? Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac were the two. Ishmael was, was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was, but Ishmael was a son, according to Genesis, a son according to the flesh, and Isaac was the son according to the promise. Now, one of the heirs of God's covenant and, and salvation, and one was not. So Isaac was the one of the covenant and of salvation. Ishmael was not. Now, Isaac, Isaac here stands for the children of promise, and Ishmael stands for the children of the flesh, just like they were called in the Old Testament. Now, look though, because another example of that fact uh, is given to us with Jacob and Esau. So look now at verse number 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now God's choice and this is where uh, we could get into some sticky, sticky situations. Um, now, real quick, um, I told you guys two weeks ago that I was going to have uh, some writing on the term election and predestination. It's not done yet, so I need you guys to hang tight with me. Uh, I, I didn't like uh, how everything turned out, and so we're just going to wait a little bit longer. So, God's choice uh, between Ishmael and Isaac seems somewhat logical uh, to us. But it's a lot harder to understand why God chose Jacob to be the heir of God's covenant of salvation instead of Esau. Now we might not understand it as easily, but God's choice is just as valid. And so Paul points out that God's choice was not based on the performance of Jacob and Esau, but that the choice was made before they were born. Now, he, Paul said that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So we do not think that God chose Jacob over Esau because he knew that their works in advance were going to be one way or the other. But Paul points out that it was nothing to do with what they would physically do, the action. Instead, the reason for choosing Jacob over Esau was found in him who calls. Now, who is him who calls? God. Him who calls is God. Now, God announced those intentions to Rebekah 
before those two boys were even born in Scripture. And he repeated the verdict long after Jacob and Esau were passed away from the earth when he said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And so we should, we should just kind of stop for a moment though because we need to regard uh, the terms love and hate um, not in our human uh, current status of those two words. Uh, we, should, we should regard the love and the hate as regarding his purpose and choosing one to become the heir of the covenant of Abraham. And in that regard, God's preference could rightly be regarded as a display of love towards Jacob and hatred towards Esau. Now, I just want to say this, theologians from hundreds of years back agree that the idea and the real thought here is more of our English terms accepted and rejected as opposed to our English term loved and hated. So think about it like this, more than our understanding of loved and hated, it was Jacob I accepted Esau I rejected. Now, I I need you to stop for a moment because the term rejected also carries along with it a lot of negative connotations. So I just, I need us to hold tight. Genesis 33 verses 8 through 16 and all of Genesis chapter 36 tell us that Esau was still a blessed man. God blessed him and his family and his life. He was a blessed man. And so God hated Esau in regard to inheriting the covenant promise of Israel. Not in regarding blessing upon his life or even in the next life. It was that his brother was chosen to be the one to fulfill the covenant. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay. Now, I cannot understand at times in my humanness why God should say that he hated Esau. There, there was, I think I shared, oh, back when we were doing our series um, uh, in Genesis at the beginning of the year, I shared a story with you about a, a lady who had approached me in our church, and she said, I can't understand when I read the book of Genesis, uh, when I read other portions of the New Testament and Old Testament where it says that God loved Jacob but hated Esau. She, this lady came up to me after church one day, and she said, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And, and I was like, how do I reply to this? And for me, I was like, well, that's not the difficulty in my eyes, my, my difficulty in understanding that portion of Scripture is how did God love Jacob? Not how did he hate Esau. How did he love Jacob? Did you guys watch? Did you guys read about Jacob's life? How did God love Jacob? Not how did he hate Esau. Our, our greatest error in this, in this life is considering the choices of God and to think that God chooses for arbitrary reasons. Uh, as if God chooses uh, by, like, you guys remember the game that we used to, maybe, maybe not, maybe it was just my generation, I hope it wasn't, uh, but we used to pick for games, and we'd be like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, right? Catch a tiger by his toe, if he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, and then mo, that would be the person that you selected, no, we can't think of theology, we can't think of biblical doctrine, we can't look at the Bible and think that's how God chose people. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Just at random. And wherever the chips fell is where it happened. Why? Because God's choices are not capricious. Never. Uh, if, you, if you ever struggle with anything in this life uh, and you read the word of God, please know that God's choices are not capricious. I want you to write it. What does capricious mean? It means haphazardly. It means not at random or shifting quickly. Uh, So God doesn't choose just willy-nilly. God's choices are are very driven. Like they're done with purpose. They're done with an intentionality. Does that make sense? Sure. Meaning God, God has a plan and a reason and a purpose for everything in his word. So look, because look at, at the next couple of verses, because the, the question could be posed, like, does God's choice of one over the other make God unrighteous? 
Does it make God unrighteous? Now, of course, our initial thought is, no, it doesn't. Or maybe from some perspective, well, yeah. Yeah, so look at verse number 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul's like, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Did you have a question? Okay, I thought you were raising your hand. On God who has mercy. So Paul asks or answers uh, the, the very strong, very, very strong language when this person says, well, does God's choice make him unrighteous? Or is there injustice in God's choice? And Paul's like, certainly not. Absolutely not. God clearly explained his right. Um, actually, if you guys will, uh, for those of you who like to study scripture, uh, I want you to write down Exodus 33. Exodus 33. God clearly explains his right to give mercy to whomever he pleases. To whomever he pleases. Someone tell me um, in an easy definition, what is mercy? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, does anyone else want to add to that? Or maybe say it differently. Did you guys hear what she said? She said, uh, a withheld punishment for something that we deserved. I love that because, anybody? I would just, I, I would take what that, and the way I would phrase it is not, mercy is not getting what I deserve. Just a very simplistic, but it's not receiving a punishment or not, no punishment going. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. You know, God is never less than fair with anybody. He is never less than fair with anybody. But he fully reserves the right as God to be more than fair with individuals as he chooses. Uh, Jesus spoke. Here's another passage I want you to write down if you're willing to read it. I want you to write down Matthew chapter 20, 1 through 16. Jesus spoke of the right of God to, to deal with individuals as he chooses in the parable of the landowner. Jesus spoke clearly to it in Matthew chapter 20, 1 through 16. And in fact, I would maybe even go as far as to say that we are in a dangerous place when we regard God's mercy towards us as our right. I'm going to say it again. We are in a very dangerous place when we regard God's mercy towards us as our right. It's my right to receive mercy. That's a very dangerous place. If God is, obli uh, if God is obliged to, to show mercy, then it's not mercy. It's an obligation. If that's where God is at, no one is ever unfair for not giving mercy. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Agreed. Love must be voluntary. If God is obligated, then it's not mercy. It's not mercy if he's obligated to give it to you. So then, if it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy... Uh, then what was Paul saying? Well, he was saying that God's mercy is not given to us because of what we wish to do. It's not given to us because of what we actually do, but it's given to us simply out of God's desire to show mercy to you and I. And so he begins to then bring up one of, probably one of the most controversial portions of Scripture from the Old Testament, his, his, God's interaction with Pharaoh. So look at, uh, look at with me at verses 17 and 18. He says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now I just want to stop. I just want to stop for a moment. God allowed Pharaoh, okay, in the days of Moses, to rise to power so that God could show his strength of judgment against Pharaoh 
and therefore glorify himself. God will sometimes glorify himself through showing mercy to people. But then sometimes God glorifies himself through man's hardness. Would you guys agree with that? Through the hardness of man's heart, God can still be glorified. And so we should not think that God persuaded an unwilling, kind-hearted Pharaoh to show a hard heart toward God's people. That's not what occurred. In hardening the heart of Pharaoh, and I'm going to, please don't miss this, in hardening the heart of Pharaoh, God simply allowed Pharaoh's heart to pursue its natural inclination, sinfulness. He just allowed for that to happen in Pharaoh's life. And we know, we know, and I'm going to name these off very quickly. We know that Pharaoh did harden his own heart according to Exodus 7.13, Exodus 7.22, Exodus 8.15, Exodus 8.19, Exodus 8.32, Exodus 9.7, and Exodus 9.34. There are nine portions of the book of Exodus that tell us that Pharaoh did what his natural inclination was, and that was to lean towards sinfulness. So does God, does God have a right then to choose, and does that relieve man of his responsibility? Does that relieve man? So look now at verse number 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? The, the, the man is asking, asking of Paul, why does, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul imagines someone asking, if it's all a matter of God's choice, then how can God find fault in me? This is the argument that Paul's tackling. How, uh, how can anyone go against God's choice is the argument. And so Paul replies by showing how disrespectful such a question is. His reply back is, that's disrespectful. If God says he chooses, and if God also says that we are responsible for them before him, then who are we to question God in our sinfulness? Who are we to question God? Does not God have the same right that any creator has over his creation? Paul's asking these questions. Therefore, if God declares that we have an eternal responsibility before him, then it is so. So look now at verse 22. He says... That what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." And so again, the same principle Paul brings up uh, in another portion of God's dealing with Pharaoh. And it's repeated here again. If God chooses to glorify himself through letting people go their own way and letting them righteously receive his wrath so as to make his power known, then who can oppose God? Who can oppose God? And as well, if God desires to be more than fair, with others, showing them his mercy, then who can oppose God in that way? And if God wants to show mercy to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, then who can bring opposition to God? Who can bring it? Paul doesn't, does, does not say that God has prepared man for destruction. So please don't miss that. Paul did not say in any place in this chapter that God prepared men for destruction. All he's saying is that those men do an adequate job on their own. Men do an adequate job on their own to be vessels of destruction. Yeah, go ahead. I don't I wouldn't go as far as to say that God created the antichrist. That would then say that God created sinfulness. Does anyone want to add to that? Did you guys hear what she said? Yeah. 
There's a, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry? I've never heard that in scripture before. To say, does anyone, does anyone want to, she said that God, she read a scripture that said that God was the author of good and evil. Sure. I've never, in my understanding in, in, and what I've learned of Scripture, uh, there, there is a belief in the Christian circles and in some denominations that will teach that God created sinfulness to occur. No, God created free will in the individual with an inclination to have to choose. And, and sin was stirred up and first came in Lucifer in heaven. And Lucifer's sin came because he wanted autonomy. He wanted to be God. He thought he was better than God. And so we initially run to, well, the first sin was Adam and Eve in the garden. No, the first sin was Lucifer in heaven. Uh, the first sin was Lucifer in heaven. And so, yeah, go ahead. Sure. Possible. It's definitely possible. Um, can you send me that verse and I'll study it out a little bit? Um, 45.7. And that's the danger, right? That's the danger right there of pulling one verse out of an entire portion of Scripture and running with it uh, to say a specific thing. Um, do you guys remember what I said a week or two ago about the difference between eisegesis and exegesis? Eisegesis is taking man's idea and finding a verse that fits it. Exegesis is interpreting all scripture with one interpretation that has multiple applications. Eisegesis is dangerous ground. That's where we get heresy from. I always think of ISIS. I, <laughs> this is similar, but not entirely spelled that way. But, yes. So let's, let's now look, though, um, let's now look at verses 25. And thanks for asking that question, by the way. That was a good question. Look at verses 25 and 26. Uh, as indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And so the, the passage of scripture uh, quoted in Isaiah chapter 10 verses 22 and 23 speaks first to God's work in saving, uh, saving a remnant uh, from the coming Assyrian destruction. And the suffering of God's people at the hands of the Assyrians and others would make them feel as if they would certainly be destroyed. But God assured them, God assured them that that was not going to be the case. If we read the Old Testament, we see time and time again that God always preserves a remnant of people in every situation. God always dealt with the remnant. There's only one, there's only one place in the Old Testament that was completely destroyed destroyed in judgment and what was that place Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom and Gomorrah was the one place mentioned that was completely destroyed in judgment but there's a quotation from the book of Isaiah chapter 1 that shows us that just as bad as Judah was and and it was because of their sin it could have been a lot worse that it was only God's mercy that kept them from being completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah were both totally destroyed with not even a small remnant to carry on those places of ungodliness. But even in the midst of God's judgment, at the same time, God was showing mercy to Judah who had completely turned away from God. Judah was headed in the same exact 
place that Sodom and Gomorrah were, and yet Christ or God still showed him mercy at the same time that he was destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. So there, there is this analysis that has to occur of, of the present situation of Israel and the Gentiles according to our human perspective. And so look now at verse number 30. Look, look at verse number 30 and 31. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's the remainder of the chapter here. Now by all appearances, uh, the Gentiles... Um, the Gentiles found righteousness even though it did not seem that they really looked for it. And by all appearances, Israel, that the Jews uh, seemed to work for righteousness with everything that had, but it did not find righteousness in its works. So what was the difference? In faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Why did the unlikely Gentiles find righteousness when the Jews did not? Well, because the Gentiles pursued the righteousness of faith that is found in Christ Jesus. Where, what did the Jews pursue? The law. The Jews pursued the law. And so the Gentiles who were saved came to God through faith, receiving his righteousness. The Jews who seemed to be cast out or off from God tried to justify themselves by performing the works of the law, by the works of the law. And so Paul emphasizes the reason why Israel seems cast off from God's goodness and his righteousness. Then he said, because they did not seek it by faith. Now we might expect Paul to answer the question why uh, from God's perspective and simply throw the matter back to God's sovereign choice. But instead, Paul uh, places the responsibility on the man. He closes out the chapter after talking about uh, the sovereignty of God. He places everything, the responsibility, back onto the man. And he said, because they did not seek it by faith, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. And so Paul has already shown us in Romans that the only way possible to be saved is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's already shown us that. He already showed us that it's not the works of the law and that salvation only comes through the work of a crucified Savior. Uh, Savior. And so the reason why there was a stumbling block for Israel was because they were so learned in the books and the works of the law that they thought that that's where they were going to go to find salvation. And so, yeah, go ahead. Well, yes, where did, the, where did the Sanhedrin come from? Where did the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Well, right out of those in the, with Jewish background that had to learn and know the law. All of the ones that argued and fought with Jesus. Jesus had the harshest things to say of the religious leaders in his day. The harshest things to say. So yes, I would definitely agree that because of that, the knowledge, uh, what did Solomon say? Knowledge puffs up. Paul reiterated it in the New Testament. Um, so yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. They were God's chosen people, and so they thought, well, I, I'm, I'm required to, to be let in because I'm one of God's chosen. Yes, 
Yes, right? If we go back to the beginning portions, uh, thank you, Terry. Um, the beginning portions, uh, Paul wrote that those who were born of the lineage of Abraham were still not saved just because they were born of the, the, uh, of the lineage of Abraham. And so Paul is showing here at the very end, in fact, he, uh, he is mentioning uh, something that he already wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, uh, Israel is responsible for their present condition. Israel is responsible. And so I'm reading this chapter, and of course, um, let me just ask this. Is there anybody who's a skeptic in here? You're skeptical? It doesn't matter. I didn't say of what, but are you a skeptic? Right, so I, I'm, I'm a skeptic about a lot of things. Um, and as I was reading this portion of Scripture, and though I've heard this portion of Scripture, I could not even tell you, my very first thought I know this isn't true, but my very first thought in my, my flesh was like, has Paul contradicted everything that he's previously said in the last eight chapters up to this point? Did he just contradict himself uh, and said uh, there's a huge emphasis on God's sovereign plan? But then as I begin to study and as I begin to pray, as I begin to seek the Lord, as I begin to look at other portions of Scripture, I... I quickly was able to, to combat that thought and was like, no, of course not. He's simply presenting the problem from, from the, the side of human responsibility, but also looking at man's responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. God's sovereign and knows all things that will come to fruition in this day and age, but man is still responsible before God, responsible for his actions responsible for the things that he says and does, responsible as a, as a husband or a wife, responsible as, as a believer if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're, you're still responsible before God in everything that we do. And yet God is still sovereign at the exact same time. Amen? And so I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, this is a this is a portion of scripture that um, can cause a lot of division in church circles because it's a portion of scripture. Give me just one second. It's a portion of scripture that challenges the 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 believer. Um, to look at a doctrine that is taught in the Bible, and that is the sovereignty of God. Um, that even in the midst of chaos, there is still control because God's hand is never not on everything that is going on. God sees and knows all things. We know this from Scripture. It's taught in the Old Testament. It's taught in the New Testament. There are hundreds of portions of Scripture that teach on God's sovereignty. Uh, ones that we cannot deny, and it's one that we have to wrestle with uh, as believers, that even in the midst of God's sovereignty, man is still responsible uh, to respond to those things. So yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. Sure. Okay. 
How about we, we connect at a, a different time, and that way I can explain in greater detail. Anybody else have anything? Yeah, go ahead, and then we'll come right here. Yeah. Hmm. Agreed. Sure. He answers my question with what I know about him and what I've read about him and through the Holy Spirit. He says, that's like asking that I create this person to raise this person to make their life this or that. Right. They're just following their fleshly. Right. I think that's why Paul talked about the situation specifically with Pharaoh. God allowed for Pharaoh to follow his natural inclination. And what is that? Sinfulness. Our natural inclination is sinfulness. And so God allowed in his sovereignty, allowed, why? Paul answered, so that his power and glory would be shown. So he allowed for things to occur, but just because God allowed for them to occur does not mean that God made it occur. He allowed for those things to occur. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, yes and then yes. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yes. Yes. Yes.
Yes. So I, I want to say something to what you said because I love, I mean, you're absolutely right. We know by the nature of God that what God does is good. What God does is good. I mean, he is a good, he is a good God and he does not change. And so what God continues to do still to this day, thousands of years after creation is still good. It is still good. And there, there comes a, a time where um, we, have to, um, we have to go back, right? So let's go back to Exodus for a moment. Because you said, does God ever recalculate, right? He knows all things ahead of time. So I would say um, yes and no to that question. Um, and the reason why I would say this is because uh, because God knows all things, uh, let's go back to when Moses sought the Lord um, on behalf of the Israelites living in sin. And it says, now I'm going to use this term that, that the original context or the original writing says, and I don't want you to panic, okay? But it says that the Lord repented of the anger in which he was going to pour out on the Israelites, now, the term repented, we automatically associate with sinful behavior. But the term repented means to turn away from, to turn away from, um, and turn towards something. And so in God's anger, he had anger, but because Moses interceded on behalf of the people, did, did God's mind change only because Moses prayed? I would say yes and no. I believe that God knew Moses was going to intercede. Why do I know that? Well, because God knows all things. So same thing with Abraham, same thing with Nehemiah, same thing with Jonah. Like God knew, God knew they were going to do these things. And so when the moment came and Moses interceded, God said, okay, I will relent of my wrath. I could have destroyed you in this very moment of time, but Moses stepped in. Right? What, what did Abraham say? God, if there were 50 righteous, if there were, what if there were only 10? What if there was just one righteous person? Well, what happened? God relented. Does it mean God is weak? No, he knew that Abraham was going to pray. He, so yeah, I love, the answer would be yes and no. Like, do we, yes, yes. The the one thing I don't want us to walk away from is thinking that God is just a genie right. to do whatever it is that we say. Um, that, is a, that is a scary place to be in, to think that we can command of God to do our will. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, but um, that. But we, we can, I believe, um, I believe in seeking and interceding on behalf um, of others, on behalf of, our, on behalf of our spouses and our marriages and our children. Yes, I believe wholeheartedly. Um, I, I was with a group of guys last night and we were talking about begging, pleading with God for mercy on behalf of, of other people, on behalf of our situations. I'm, right, that, that's it. That's what Moses did. That's what Abraham did. That's, that's what they did. They were begging of God, like, God, you're a merciful God, so show mercy. Not, they weren't, I, I don't believe, I don't believe, and in my, my opinion, from what I see from Scripture, those men and women of the Old Testament were not, were not prideful and arrogant and cocky in their prayers. I believe that they genuinely had, had, like Paul, they had sorrow and grief in their heart for the souls of man, and they were interceding on behalf. So I have a question. We're going we're gonna to close up. We're going to close up a little bit early tonight, because I have a question, a question I want you to think about. Um, when was the last time, how often do I go to go to, to the Lord in prayer, interceding and begging of mercy on behalf of other people, on behalf of our kids, our spouses, our cousins, our, our, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our country. 
When? When was the last time I got on my face before God begging of mercy? Begging of mercy. I don't need to know an answer. Uh, we're not, we don't have to discuss, but when? I don't want you to incriminate yourself here. That's not what I'm trying to, I want us to, to honestly, when was the last time I, I was sorrow filled over the soul of another? Uh, I, I believe that the reason why Paul was unashamed of the gospel that he told us in, in chapter 1 of Romans was because he had such a heart for lost and hurting people that he wanted to just he wanted to speak truth to them so that they would know the truth telling and truth giving God. So that's when was the last time I begged God of mercy uh, for people, and when was the last time I was sorrow filled or sorrowful when I was grief stricken for the soul of another? <clears throat> 